The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and we had some great main stage speakers bring us convicting and inspiring messages. Today we're bringing you one of those main stage messages. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. Here's today's keynote message. Uh, A statement that the Lord really impressed upon my heart this morning that is kind of going to shape the rhythm of our time together with me up here. And it's this simple conviction. If I don't make disciples, our local church dies. Let me say that one more time. If I don't make disciples, our local church dies. So the reality of a commitment to discipleship is not something that's cute for a 20-minute dialogue and conversation from a stage. It has to be something that is woven within the DNA of why I live and breathe and have my being on this side of eternity. And as I look at this, I think about the fact that I want to pull back from that extreme statement to now nuance it a little bit. Is the fact that Jesus is the one who builds his church, not me. I'm called to be the church, not build the church. So if Jesus is building his church, then I can rest assured that I can exhale without the pressure of performance in disciple making that the work of Jesus does not rise and fall on my local church. My local church may not be around five years from now. That does not mean Jesus has failed, and that does not mean that I failed. What it means is that in his sovereignty of constructing his people and forming and fashioning the bride of Christ, in his sovereignty, unbeknownst to my limited understanding, he just chose not to continue that work through this display of a local church. And so that's the tension that I'm constantly walking in. But at the same time, Not to cheapen the existence of the local church. I understand that Jesus' work of building his church is demonstrated. It's made visible through the local church that I am called to pastor at. And if we are obedient to the command of Christ in his commission of disciple making, then he has promised us holistic flourishing in each of our local churches. So the main point of my time with you this afternoon is this. The discipleship strategy that I feel compelled to implement consists of three levels of multiplication. The first is my inner circle, which is my wife always, and then one or two other men who are in membership of our local church. Number two is an intermediate council. Right now in this season of life, it consists of five men who are members of our church that have said, I feel a leading, a calling, an internal desire to become an under-shepherd of the Lord's flock here in Long Beach, California. And then on top of that, there is the prayerful result of a maturing interdependent congregation that right now has 48 adults and 30 children. I'm not the pastor of a mega church. I don't have a hundred people on the membership roll. We're talking grassroots in the hood, Los Angeles, North Long Beach. We're talking the griminess, the messiness of everything that we read in the scriptures because that is the complex setting that Jesus has called my family and I to live on his mission in that specific environment. So much of my conviction roots back to Ephesians chapter 4, specifically verses 1 through 16. So as I talk through my inner circle, I want to go to the word where it says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It is my conviction based on the man named Mike Pyburn, who many of you may never heard of and never will hear of again, who loved me enough that in 2005, he extended a personal invitation to a committed, formal discipleship relationship with me. I had been walking with Jesus in immaturity for nine years until that first formal invitation for discipleship was extended to me by the man who discipled me. And he began to tell me, 
This relationship is not a one-way street. It is a two-way street. That I am a learner of you and you are a learner of me as we are both learners of Christ. And the reality of that conviction then compelled me to open the whole of my life to my wife, to my discipler, and then those that he began to commission me to now go and do what was done in my life. So this group of individuals that I'm walking in life with, these two men and my wife in the current season, they hold my reputation. Twitter doesn't, Facebook doesn't, people that slander me, people that disagree with me, or people that praise the teaching ministry that Jesus effectively uses through my frail, stammering lips. None of them hold my reputation. My wife and these two men that are living in obscurity to the rest of the world, but in Long Beach, California, they hold my reputation. Because when I'm attacked, I turn to them. When I have blind spots, they're the ones uncovering them. It is a fact that I want them to see that I am walking in a manner worthy of the calling that I have been called and that I am doing also the same thing in their lives. Highlighting blind spots, engaging the word of God when there's a crisis moment, when we're more in our feelings, it's recalibrating our emotionalism back to the truthfulness of God's word so we can move with a more stable, discerning posture as we're navigating through the tensions of life and the environment we live in. We're navigating in a complex setting of Los Angeles and Long Beach. But we're also in complex situations wherever you may live because I think we're in this rhythm of Matthew 28 where Jesus commands us to teach those that we are discipling to observe all that he has commanded. And the reality of what he has commanded us is that there are social commands and there are spiritual commands. And one of the greatest detriments in my limited assessment of American evangelicalism is that we have put too great of a focus on the spiritual commands and not enough focus on the social commands of Christ. That we will advocate for repentance, spiritual disciplines, yes and amen, but we will not make love my neighbor who is unregenerate, non-believing, non-follower of Christ a priority in the rhythm of our Jesus following. We have done this. The aroma that we have sent off in creating this false dichotomy is a stench to the non-believing world who is watching us. And they are turned off of our Messiah whose life rhythm was the perfect harmonious balance of social and spiritual. But in addition to that, we have the complexity of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 because in that rhythm of life, we see that there is a worldly system. None of us would argue against the worldly system. It is the rhythm of this world that is governed and massaged and pied piper, if you will, by the prince of the power of this age, who is the God of this age, Satan himself, who leverages his influence over the unregenerate sons of disobedience, who are human beings that are unregenerate and leadership positions of power to navigate the course of life away from the cross, away from the truth of God's word, doubting the existence of God, doubting the goodness of God, doubting the word of God. That is the rhythm of life for this world. So we're trying to walk that balance of social and spiritual obedience to the words of our risen Lord while living in opposition to our flesh, the evil one, and a spiritual, sinful, systemic principality system that is manifested through sinful, social, systemic realities that are opposite of God's written word. All of us are in complex situations. It's not just Los Angeles. It's any area of this world where the touches and the curse of the fall has been basically set free, and that is every square inch of this world. But yet, I'm reminded of Abraham Kuyper, who clearly communicated, when it comes to this world, when it comes to this universe, our King Jesus is the one who says, there is not one square inch of this entire world and universe where I have not declared that is mine. So we don't walk as victims 
of an oppressive system, we walk in victory that our Savior has secured while we face opposition, while we face spiritual and social attacks. Because it is in those fires of trial and suffering that discipleship flourishes. It's in that tension. So as my wife and these two men are walking with me, we are all committed to doing this in all humility, gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. And we are all eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, everything I just said is legit work. Discipleship is not for the lazy. It's not. It is work. It is getting together at 5.30 in the morning. It is saying, I'm not going to watch the Dodgers game tonight. It's saying that you mean more to me than World Series game number three if necessary. And that's a lot coming from me, especially when you're down 0-2. But it's also saying that I am committed to this relationship because when I launch you out, you must have even greater fervor for the one that you're called to disciple so that we don't lose what Christ has given his disciples who over the next three millennia have successfully handed down generation to generation. That helps us in America recognize the Christian faith did not start in 1776. Our legacy stretches back over three millennia. This is nothing new. It may be new to the non-believer, but it's not new to the covenant people of God. So when we recognize that it's time to wipe the ashes off of biblical Jesus-following Christianity and recalibrate it and introduce it to society as a whole like our mothers and fathers did when they held the hands of those who were sick with the plague and they welcomed them with a dignifying death and a proper burial because they respected the Imago Dei even when they contracted the plague and our fathers and mothers died in the streets of Rome because of this plague because they were convicted to show the compassion of Jesus by holding a disease-infested, even unregenerate human being and giving them a death that says you will not die alone. That's the faith that shows throughout the bloodline of our King Jesus in this one new humanity that he is forming. That's our faith. So when I look at this, that's when I recognize the relationships are worth the work. The relationships are risky, but the reward of seeing spiritual maturity and the Christian faith handed down to another generation of Jesus followers way, way, way outweighs the risk and the work. See, when we're talking about what Paul is saying, we have to understand that these relationships run well when there's constant maintenance. It reminds me of my first car, 1988 Ford Escort, black hatchback. Driving that in the hood, it wasn't 1988 when I got that car. It was 2001. It wasn't fresh off the lot. It broke down. I had to put carburetor cleanser every time before I started my car and prayed that the Holy Spirit would start that engine. And all them pistons would be working and all the spark plugs were working. Many times it broke down on the freeway and I had to call my dad to come pick me up. But the reality of that car is that it took a lot of babying. It took a lot of maintenance. That I had to know that if I want to get from point A to point B in that car, then I got to coax that thing. I got to keep working on that thing. I got to keep maintenancing that thing. Now our discipleship relationship should be more valuable than a piece of metal in an engine that gets us from point A to point B. So the work of the investment of maintaining that relationship is well worth the investment. So how do I do that? Well, regular attention and checking in with the individuals and confessing our sins and going to the scriptures to receive assurance of forgiveness and showing the scripture as the balm that heals our heart wounds is that we get together with our wives and we put times on calendars and my wife is discipling these brothers' wives and we put times on calendars with all of us present so that we know our family rhythms are dictated and driven by our discipleship rhythms. They're not dichotomized. They are one and the same. We want our children to see this. When my kids are asking, are the ladies coming over for discipleship? Dad, are you getting with the fellas tonight? They're recognizing discipleship is normal for the Jesus follower. It's not a tack on. 
It's the breath that we breathe. And when they begin to see people cycled and cycled, we let them know there's a time limit on this relationship. And halfway through that expiration time, I'm already challenging them to grab a hold of somebody else and do unto them as I've done unto you. And then I expand our relationship to not just maintenance, but now how can they now be greater prepared to follow that master plan of evangelism, which is discipleship? How can they be ready to be launched, not hoarded, but launched so they can go and do the same so that I can be freed up to start this walk with two other individuals? So that leads to the intermediate council. All that work is the inner circle. See, the intermediate council in a church plant that we're in, it's multi-ethnic. It's made up of men I've observed over the course of time that I see living out the qualifications of an elder. But I approach them and their wives as me and my wife prayed and assessed the character of the individuals from a distance back in April and sat down with them and laid out a plan that I said will probably change three weeks from now. It doesn't lead to being put on staff with money. It's not glorious. It's not going to lead to things that you may think. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be stressful. So we gave those couples two months to pray and prepare. And then we presented the people that said, yes, I'm in to the congregation and made them aware of what's going on. That for six months, we would focus on 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, that they will be focusing on their life rhythm, the qualifications, how are they leading their home, in addition to working on handling the word of God, sermon prepping, getting in the pulpit so they can cut their teeth and stumble and, and, and work through the nuances and the awkwardness of public speaking so that people would begin to see leadership is becoming more established. That these individuals, some of them have education. Some of them don't have education. Some of them have church experience and leadership. Some of them have been waiting to be formally discipled for a long time, just like I was for nine years. And then when God intersected my life with theirs, I assessed you were further along down the road than you think you are. You just needed somebody outside of yourself to affirm and confirm and now ask you to pray about this position. And so we said we'll take six months to work through that licensure process and then that would lead to a 12-month elder in training process where everything is done in the openness of the church and between the family. Why would I want to set things up this way? Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. In Ephesians 4, 7, we see that the gift of grace is given to every single believer. That is salvation. Every believer has been given the gift of grace. But in verse 8 through 10, we see something very interesting. It's a loose quoting of Psalm 68, 18. And in that quoting, the psalmist is communicating the reality of a victorious king who won the battle and is now sharing the spoils of victory with his own people. And then Paul begins to then truly help us understand the victory of Jesus Christ, but then that also helps us understand that if he is giving gifts to the church, the gifts that he is given is not salvation, it's the people, it's the men and women. Every single man and woman in our local church is a gift from King Jesus to that local church. They need to be told that. They need to have that truth massaged into their heart. You are not a burden, you are a blessing. You are a gift from King Jesus who is building his church to help build this local church. And then that leads to verse 11 where Jesus also gives gifted leaders with specific giftings in order to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Much of my shaping has come from Alan Hirsch and his work on 5Q and things of that nature when it comes to that perspective. And so when I have identified these individuals, I've brought them through various assessments and we see who is apostolic, which means who is a visionary, who is prophetic, especially in a society with a lot of ills where we say, where do we line in the word of God and the heart of God on immigration? Where do we line on education reform? Where do we line with the LGBTQI agenda? Where, where is the framework given by God that transcends culture and transcends humanistic reinterpretation? Where do we frame this out? What about the evangelist who is burdened for the loss? What about the shepherd teachers? 
which I view as one gifting, not two separate ones. And how do we have all four of these made visible in the leadership so that we are firing from all cylinders, from every nuance and perspective of giftingness to now be more robust in equipping the people for familial interdependence. So you have the interdependent congregation, which I believe is the result that we're praying for. Maturity is the goal of discipleship, but maturity is gained through suffering. If you want to mature as a local body, then you must say we must form our togetherness while we are suffering. But it takes leadership to set the theological framework. My professor in seminary said it is better to form your theological framework before the crisis rather than dangerously forming it while in crisis because the foundation will be iron and clay with mixed emotions and exegetical work that has been influenced by humanism in the midst of suffering. So be proactive in setting that theological framework and living it out and massaging these truths of remembrance while the crisis is happening and taking place. Our goal in leadership, according to that passage, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And as the worship team comes back up, this is what I want to close with. That equipping the saints for the work of ministry means preparing people by placing them in a position to do what God has put on their heart to do. You've seen it referenced with the Los Angeles Dodgers. I think they are a good illustration to close with. The Los Angeles Dodgers is not just a 25-person roster that plays. No, there are coaches There's a GM, there are managers, there are trainers, there are specialty coaches for various specifics and positions. There are the individuals that do laundry because they have to have clean uniforms when they get on the field to play. As pastors, it's best that we diversify our leadership team, but as pastors, we recognize we're player coaches because we have to be engaged in the work as well while we're doing the equipping, while we're leading, while we're shepherding, and we're showing them what this looks like. And the way that we're doing that is in the pulpit, in our sermons. We are telling them the importance of discipleship rhythms. We're not saying this is something you can consider. It's something you're commanded to do. But then they're getting it from their pastor, who is an example of living out these relationships at the same time while preaching and exhorting the people to replicate as I'm replicating Paul, who replicated Christ. And then there are the peers training our people. That when you hear people talk about there's no real relationships, everything is superficial. The first question we ask is, who are you walking in discipleship with? Cut the games. We have an enemy that is looking for weak sheep so that he can steal, kill, and destroy. Cut the games. The reality is, who are you living in intimate intentionality with? Because if you were having those kind of relationships, you wouldn't say this church is superficial. Because you're countering those lies of the enemy by living out discipleship rhythms. So that's why I say, if I don't make disciples, our local church will die. Do I believe it is Jesus' will for the local church to die? No, I don't. But I also am comforted by the fact that no matter what happens a year from now, 10 years from now, five years from now, Jesus is Lord, he's building his church and I'm awaiting his return. Would you pray with me? Father, as we have walked through these truths, I pray that you would help every hearer contextualize these things to where they are. Comfort them, bring clarity, conviction, and challenge where it's needed. And as we enter into this time of worship, allow our hearts to be reflective in who you are, in the Messiah, risen Lord, conquering King that we pledge allegiance to primarily, that you are working these things out. None of us are experts in perfectly doing the work of discipleship. So thank you for doing it perfectly on our behalf. Thank you that your perfect righteousness covers us even in our sinfulness, even in our brokenness, even in our blind spots. Thank you for removing the pressure of performance from us and freeing us to walk in obedience. May we walk with diligence. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I want to finish by uh, just really challenging you. I want to motivate you. I I want to empower you to leave and really not just hear the message of disciple making, but actually apply it. So much so that you'll make Jesus' final words 
the first work of your life, right? So here's what I want to do. I want to give you the master's model for making disciples. The ma- People say, how did you guys figure out this process for discipleship at Replicate? Or even you could ask any of the ministries here. And, and I tell people, uh, we didn't make it up. Like Jesus did this a long time ago, right? Like we don't have a monopoly on making disciples. Now here's the statement I want to make, and I want you to get this. R- write this down. You and I cannot expect to experience the blessings of the ministry of Jesus and divorce ourselves from the method he used. Do you believe that? Let me say it again. You and I can't expect to experience the the blessing of the ministry of Jesus and divorce ourselves from the method he used. Now, I do on Sunday, and if this was a normal uh, service at my church, I I do what's called expository preaching or exegetical text-driven preaching. What that means is this. I believe that the Word of God is inspired. You believe that? Inerrant, infallible, sufficient. It's the Word of God. These aren't words on a page. This is the actual Word of God. But not only do I believe, follow me, that the words are inspired, I believe the encounters are inspired. Now think about this. People say, I've never heard this before. Think about this. You would agree with me that the woman at the well on that day at lunchtime is not just there by happenstance when Jesus just walks through Samaria, wouldn't you agree? Like God planned before the foundation of the world for this woman to be here. So if that's the case, if the encounters are inspired, then the method Jesus used for making disciples is inspired. We can't experience or expect to experience the blessings of the ministry of Jesus and divorce ourselves from the method he used. Now, before I give you the method we use at Long Hollow and different churches that I've pastored, I want to give you the two challenges we're up against, because when you leave here, I just want you to be aware of the challenges we're up against so that we can really combat them. Number one is this. Here's the first challenge. The first challenge is that believers in our churches do not understand the mission they're called to. What is the mission that Jesus gave us? What what are the final words Jesus gave us uh, or gave to the disciples? Do you remember them? The great what? The great commission. Does anybody know what the great commission is? All authority, can anybody say it? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore what? Go make disciples of all nations. Now this is what's cool about this group. When you're with a disciple first tribe, they know this. When I'm with a normal tribe of pastors and teachers and leaders, sometimes they don't know that, but you guys get that. Isn't it interesting that the one thing Jesus commanded us to do, in fact, the only thing Jesus authorized us to do is the one thing, sadly, we don't do. Barna just released this study recently. They polled hundreds of churchgoers, thousands, I think, and asked them this question. People who go to church, they asked them this question. Do you know what the Great Commission is? Guess how many people said, I don't know what the Great Commission is? 51% of churchgoers. Now, what's even more startling is that 25% of those, in addition to that, said, I think I've heard of the Great Commission, but I really don't know what it is. You you see the dilemma here. 76% of churchgoers either don't know the Great Commission or have heard about it, but don't know. Do you see the challenge we have? So one of the challenges we face in the church is that people who are born again, adopted into the family of God, filled with the Spirit of God, do not even know the mission of God that he's called us to, number one. The second challenge we face is this. Believers don't know where to begin in the disciple-making process. Here's the cool thing about the Great Commission. When Jesus, write this down, when Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he didn't give us a stop, he gave us a step. (laughs) It's not a stop. Here's what I mean. It's not a point you reach. The Great Commission is the process of your life. Right? Here's the newsflash. We never graduate from disciple making. Amen? Like, it never, like, it's not a destination you arrive at. I tell people, it's not even a class you take. It's not a 12-week study. It's not a certificate on the wall. It's not a class you take. It's the course of your life. This is, this is kind of the rhythm, as DA said, of your life. This is the ebb and flow of our life. I had the privilege uh, two years ago to be appointed by the Southern Baptist Convention, which I'm a pastor, Southern Baptist Convention, to lead what is called the disciple-making or was the disciple-making task force. And it was cool because our convention thought, okay, 46,000 churches in our convention 
are we making disciples in the convention? I was excited because we're actually asking this question, right? It was for the first time in a long time. And so I met with a team, Johnny Hunt, Eric Geiger, other people you may know. And we met for one year and came back to the convention and said, there's no way we can figure out if we're making disciples or not in one year. We need two. <laughs> so we met for two years and still really felt like, do we really know what's going on? But here's what we did. We pulled large churches and small churches. We pulled uh, urban churches and rural churches, mega churches and, and, and county churches. I mean, just everything in between. And here's what we found out. This study, now let me warn you, is gonna blow your mind. But here's the reality. If you're not a Southern Baptist church, I would submit it's happening in your denomination as well. In 1996, 20 years ago, we asked the question, how many people were meeting in weekly worship service in the Southern Baptist Convention? Now, this is not membership because God knows you can't find half the people. The FBI couldn't find half the people in a lot of our churches, right? But these are weekly worship numbers, okay? So these are people who actually come to church. So we asked the question, how many people in 1996 were meeting weekly in the Southern Baptist Convention as a whole? 5,224,000 people. Remember that number. 5,224,000 people. In 20 years from 1996 to 2016, was the last year we had numbers for, we asked the question, how many people were baptized? Fair, fair question, right? How many people were baptized? In that 20-year period, we baptized, as a convention, 7.1 million people. Does that seem like a big number to you? It did to me. Like 7.1 million people. Now, I know you're saying, well, that may be exaggerated, or maybe we were quick to baptize. Forget that. The, the reality is 7.1 million people. So you would think in 20 years, the Southern Baptist Convention could have grown to what? 12, 13 million? But that's maybe too bold. Attrition, people die, let's say half of that, okay? So ha let's say you grow by three million, you would think three million, right? Eight million people would grow to? No. Two million people? No. In 20 years, in our convention, we went from 5,224,000 people meeting weekly to losing 24,000 people. We declined as a convention in weekly attendance by 24,000 people. Here's the question. Where did the 7.1 million go? And I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but I'm going to give you a few of them. Could it be in the church that we have preached half the gospel? Here's what I mean. Could it be that we have preached salvation is essential, following Jesus is optional, Right? Like, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Like, like salvation's essential, following Jesus is optional. And in that mindset, guess what happens? Discipleship becomes optional. You want to read your Bible? Who cares? <laughs> prayer, prayer who, who? that's a choice, you'll never make it. Coming to church or going to see the Titans play or the Cowboys play, that's on you. Listen, you're going to heaven anyway. Friends, I want to submit to you that concept is devoid of the Bible. The Bible is devoid of that mindset because here's the reality. A person who is called to salvation is called to discipleship. The word Christian is only found in the New Testament three times. The word disciple is found 269 times. Here's the question. What does Jesus want us to make? Christians or disciples, right? Big difference. See, the reality is if you preach that gospel, following Jesus is essential, I mean, salvation is essential, following Jesus is optional, the spiritual disciplines in your church for your people become recommended but not required activities. And here's what happens. Somebody walks the aisle, the, 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 and let me just, can I just meddle for just a moment? This is yes. This is, some of you saying you've been meddling since you got up, right? But anyway, but, but let me just meddle for just a moment, right? This is what happens. A person walks the aisle on Sunday morning, and I've been guilty of this too. And we say, brother, if you repeat this prayer and say amen at the right place at the right time, we pat you on the back, we say, brother Joe is a Christian, we give him a Bible, and here's what we say. Start with the gospel of what? Now, where did that ever come from? <laughs> Who ever thought of that? Like, here's a great book. Uh, I know the author. By the way, uh, read, start on page 296. You'll love it. Don't, don't worry about the front stuff. Just, uh, but that's what we do. We tell him, listen, suck it up. We'll see you next week. And try to decipher this Bible that you have no clue of what to do with. And we wonder why people are going out the back door as fast as they're coming in the front door. Can I get an amen? This is what's happening in our churches today. And I think one of the challenges for us is this. Could it be that we have taught people what they're safe from? but we haven't taught them what they're safe for.
It's a big deal. Could it be that we've made baptism the finish line and not the starting line of a relationship with Christ. See, that's where the real work begins. Yes, do we high five salvation? People make the salvation experience? Yes. Do we high five people who are baptized? Yes, but we don't leave them there. See, one of the things about the Lord Jesus is he saves us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we were. So what's the solution? We met as a team for two years and we thought, what is the one thing we can give in a tangible way that people can see life change in their church? We had the backing of LifeWay, Eric Geiger was the vice president, and he gave us access to research that was not out at the time. I'm gonna give you access to it now, I think it's come out now, but LifeWay Research did the largest discipleship study in the history of anybody ever doing discipleship analysis. And they asked a couple questions to hundreds and thousands of people, and they came up with four things in the area of discipleship, I wanna give them to you. Number one is this, groups matter a lot. And they didn't get specific about what size the groups or how the groups are, but they said groups matter a lot. That's where transformation happens. Number two is discipleship is intentional. You and I both know discipleship is not gonna happen by happenstance, right? It's, it's, you're, not, you're not gonna stumble onto maturity. You're not gonna stumble into growth, right, spiritual growth. Number three, and here's the two I wanna camp out on. Bible engagement is the number one spiritual discipline in the Christian life. If you're an investing person, which we all are, and you're gonna invest in one spiritual discipline, fasting, silence, solitude, memorization, journaling, evangelism, worship, you name it. Life, the, the data proves it. Bible engagement, hearing the Bible and applying the Bible is the number one spiritual discipline in the Christian life. You're gonna love this. Number four, pigeon, or dovetails from the first, and here it is, or from the, from the third, and here it is. People who engage the Bible are more likely to engage in other spiritual disciplines. I love this. So people who are engaged in the Bible, give more. You want your people to be more generous? Get them in the word. People who engage the Bible, raise a holy hand in worship. People who engage the Bible, serve more in the local church. People who engage the Bible, volunteer. Anybody need more volunteers in their church or do you have enough? That's a joke, we all need them, right? People who engage the Bible give more, they go more, they're committed more. And so the answer is this, how are you moving your people? Well, the question is, how are you moving your people through a spiritual pathway or process for growth? I stumbled upon this idea by studying years ago uh, the New Testament, did a cursory study of the New Testament. I found out that Jesus ministered in five distinct groups because I realized that not only was his message inspired, but his method was inspired. Jesus ministered in five groups. He ministered to the crowd, but on few occasions. Preaching, feeding 5,000, 4,000, Sermon on the Mount, Feast of Tabernacles, a few others, but few occasions. He preached to the congregation, the 120 or the 70, but he preached to them just at the end of his ministry. Jesus spent, you ready for this, 90% of his time, according to Eugene Peterson, 90% of his time with 12 men. The community group of 12, the core group of three, and there are number five, close relationships which are rare, but he had those close relationships. Here's what I did. We took that fourfold strategy, we left out the close relationships, and we said, could we apply Jesus' model for making disciples in the local church? Like, could it work? And the answer is what? Absolutely. So here's what we did. We started with worship, Worship, which is the congregation. We led to life group, which is the community group. We led to D groups, which are groups like Peter, James, and John, men with men, women with women. They met for the purpose of accountability and transparency and intimacy. They met for 12 to 18 months for the purpose of reproduction. And then out of the D group, we led to changing the world. So this fourfold strategy, worship, life group, D group, change the world. This is about five or six years ago. I just so happened to be speaking, I think, at an event in California, and I passed by and stopped at a good friend of mine's house, Bill Hull. And Bill and I were gonna check off a bucket list item, a Lakers game together. So DA, here we were, LA, Bill and I, two former basketball players, loving life, seeing the Lakers. And I said, Bill, you're gonna love this. I got, a, I got an idea that I think will work in the church. Could it work? Worship that leads to life group, life group that leads to D group, and out of the D groups, we can change the world. Bill said it's a great idea. 
So the only problem is John Wesley did that in 1750. <laughs> I said, really? Now, I didn't know about this because honestly, and you probably haven't heard about this because when I knew John Wesley in seminary, it was basically for his preaching. You have to understand, John Wesley was a masterful preacher, even though he's not known for preaching. Wesley was a great preacher. Now, he wasn't as good as his counterpart, George Whitfield, but he was a great preacher. He was a man who really put in the work. He preached 44,000 times over 54 years. John Wesley traveled by carriage or horseback 200,000 miles, 5,000 miles a year preaching with uh, an antiquated system of travel back then. Now, but the problem is you and I don't know John Wesley for his preaching. In fact, you couldn't probably tell me any of his sermons, could you? Uh, the sermon he preached on the kingdom of God and the way in, or the sermon he preached on the reasons of being born again, or his first fruits of the morning. You couldn't tell me any of those sermons, and I probably couldn't tell you many of them either offhand, but the reason we know Wesley is not for his preaching. We know Wesley because he was an organizational genius. Now, he wasn't the best preacher, as I said. George Whitfield was the best preacher. In fact, Whitfield was such a good preacher that it was said that, John, that Benjamin Franklin would come hear Whitfield preach as an unbeliever. Like Whitfield had the ability to hold crowds of five to 10,000 spellbound without the use of amplification. He could preach, and Benjamin Franklin was there one day, and he would walk across the edge of the crowd just to hear West Whitfield preach, and someone asked him one time, why are you here, Mr. Franklin? You don't believe what Whitfield is saying. Franklin said, I don't believe what Whitfield is saying, but Whitfield does, and that's why I'm here. He was amazed with his passion. Now, Wesley was nothing like Whitfield, but Wesley was an organizational genius. In fact, Wesley is known for the contagious Methodist movement which canvassed America. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this, believe it or not, in his book, The Tipping Point. And he compares John Wesley to other men of his time. Here's what he says. He says, Methodism's founder, John Wesley, was by no means the most charismatic preacher of his era. That honor belonged to George Whitfield, an order of such power and charisma that it was said he once charmed a five-pound contribution out of Benjamin Franklin, who, of course, was the furthest thing from a churchgoer. Nor was Wesley a great theologian in the tradition of, say, John Calvin or Martin Luther. His genius was organizational. Wesley would travel around England and North America delivering open-air sermons to thousands of people, but he didn't just preach, he also stayed long enough in each town to form the most enthusiastic of converts in religious societies, which he then turned into subdivisions into smaller classes of a dozen or so people. When I was studying this, I was with Dr. Coleman, Bobby Harrington, and a couple other guys at a conference one one time, and I asked Dr. Coleman this question because I knew he was a student of Wesley and he had known about Wesley. And I said, Dr. Coleman, tell me about the movement of Methodism from 1750 until the death of John Wesley. Here's what he said. He said, Methodism had swept so much in America that by 1820, 70 years, 35% of all Christians in America identified as Wesleyan or Methodist. 35% of all Christians in America said, I'm a Methodist. Methodism had outpaced the closest denomination by 20%. How did he do it? He reduced people into simple processes for spiritual growth. He moved people from societies to classes to bands. That's what we do at Replicate. We move people from worship to life group to D group, and out of the D group, they change the world. Now, here's the reality. You don't have to use our system. You don't even have to use our model. One of the beautiful things of discipleship.org is there's a lot of models out there that people are implementing that are working. That is Jesus's model of discipleship. But here's the reality. You, you should have a model. Someone came up to me one time. We were teaching and he said, uh, I don't agree <laughs> with the way you guys make disciple at Replicate. I said, really? He said, I don't agree with the model. I said, really? Well, tell me about your model. He said, we don't have a model. Pulled a line from D.L. Moody. I think I'll stick with my model, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'd rather use mine, which is one that we see working than one that doesn't work. So here's the reality. People in our churches want to grow closer to the Lord, but you would agree with me. They don't know how. And when people in our churches don't know what to do, guess what? 
they don't do anything at all. But the question I wanna end with is this, what kind of legacy did John Wesley leave? See, Wesley lingered after Whitfield left town and he moved people through this process of spiritual growth. What kind of, what kind of legacy did John Wesley leave? I wanna give you one insight from a historian, I'm gonna give you one insight from Whitfield himself. Holland McTeer said it was by this means, the formation of societies, classes, and bands, that we have been enabled to establish permanent and holy churches all over the world. Mr. Wesley saw the necessity of this from the beginning. Mr. Whitfield, when he separated from Wesley, did not follow it. What was the consequence? The fruit of Mr. West Whitfield died with himself. Mr. Wesley's fruit remains, grows, increases, and multiplies exceedingly. But don't take this historian's word for it. Listen to George Whitfield by his own admission. A man named John Poole, who was a Methodist preacher, came in contact with George Whitfield. I found this quote in a biography. He said, Mr. Whitfield, it's good to see you. Whitfield said, John, are you still a Wesleyan? Mr. Poole said, yes, sir, I am, and I thank God that I had the privilege of being one of Mr. Wesley's preachers. Whitfield said, John, you are in the right place. Watch this. My brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under conversion, he joined into classes, societies, and bands, and thus the fruits of his labor persevered. Whitfield said, this is something I neglected, and I feel that my people are a rope of sand, end quote. See, here's the thing. John Wesley knew the power of rapid multiplication when the people of God are empowered to do the work of God for the glory of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. And he knew how that could work in the people. Um, we just bought some land about a year ago, uh, close to the church, two minutes from our church, and it was six acres of land, which is really, church members sold me the land, it was great, and I needed to kind of get away, and so, and I'd never owned any land before, I'm from New Orleans, so. <laughs> Uh, didn't know anything about it. And so as we were about to build our home, Candy and I were standing on the land and she's like, uh, she's looking out at the six acres and she said, uh, who, who's gonna cut all this grass? I thought, now that's a good question, right? I never thought, that is a good question. So what did I do? I went out and bought animals. And that's what you do when you got land, right? So I fenced in uh, some of the land and I bought some animals and uh, I started putting animals on the, on the Galilee farm as the staff started to jokingly call it. And uh, the, one of my staff members said, do you know anything about farming? I said, no. They said, have you ever been on a farm? I said, no. Do, have you ever had animals before? I said, no. They said, well, what are you doing? How are you gonna learn? I said, YouTube. <laughs> you can learn a lot on YouTube, right? So uh, I bought, I, bought uh, I got three, uh, first of all, I got uh, three Nigerian goats. Uh, little bitty cute goats. I got two lambs, uh, and we named them after Christians. You know, one lamb was Lottie Moon, and so anyway. <laughs> and, we, and then we had, and then we had the animals, but we needed somebody to protect it because the coyotes. And so then we had to buy a donkey. My poor wife. And then once we had the donkey, then we realized one of the neighbors' uh, dogs got in the, the 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 gate and killed one of the lambs. Lottie Moon, unfortunately, as a Christmas offering. But anyway, so we, <laughs> which was true. So Lottie Moon died. And so then I had to get a great Pyrenees to protect the animals. And then I had to get some ducks for the boys. And then I had to replace the lamb. And so we got this galley farm. And so here's the thing about animals I've learned. There are so many lessons to the Christian life. Like as a shepherd of sheep, there's so many lessons. I'll tell you two of them and then I'll give you one to close. The first thing about, about sheep is if you open the gate of, of our property and you have the sheep there, when the sheep are just by themselves, no goats. When I had the sheep and I'd open the gate, do you know a sheep will never go out of an open gate? They'll stare at it. It's not until the goats walk around the sheep and lead and the sheep immediately follow the goats. There's a lot of biblical insight there, right? The second one is this. A sheep's body is 60 to 70% water. Did you know this? And if a sheep eats too much and falls on its back, it can, just search this on YouTube, sheep back. They can't get up. They're stuck. They're, they don't, the legs don't bend, so they're like, like sticks, you know. Just to, it, it, it's required that the shepherd assist the sheep back up. A lot of biblical insight there. But here's the one I want to leave you with, and I think this is the most impactful for discipleship. Here's what I realize about being a shepherd of sheep. Shepherds don't make sheep. Sheep make sheep. Shepherds don't make sheep. Sheep make sheep. You're saying that's pretty elementary. Is it? Brother Pastor, listen. If you keep, leader in a church, listen. If you keep trying to frustrate yourself by executing all the ministry, you're just gonna burn yourself out in ministry and leave frustrated. Or worse, you're gonna burn your staff out and they'll leave frustrated. 
Isn't it a better strategy to empower our people to equip the saints for the work of ministry, leaving the results to God and God get the glory as we give people the ability to carry out the God-given ministry God has given them and some for the first time taking ownership of their faith. Sheep make sheep, not shepherds. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this wonderful ministry of making disciples who make disciples of all nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, both of you. You got us two on the love seat here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not awkward at all, man. Not awkward at all. Bro. Hey, I got my suburban and my urban context for disciple making right here. Oh, man, that's good. Well, thank you, guys. I, you know, we, what we wanted to do, uh, first of all, is such a privilege to be able to talk to both of you and talk about what you just said. And you both were super encouraging and super helpful. And what we want to do is bring it home. We want to talk. We've got a lot of friends here. They're in different church contexts and situations. Dave, can I begin by thanking you sure. for starting off by saying, you know, uh, it's not like I have a lot of people yeah. on Sunday morning. Yeah. Can I tell you why? It's really easy in conferences and forums to highlight people who, in the eyes of the world, look really successful. Mm-hmm but maybe in the eyes of God, not so much. And when you say, I got like 48 adults, I think you said, and that's who I'm discipling, that's where a lot more people here are living. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just thank you for that. But also, it's not saying that small is the only way God works. Right. God works in contexts of thousands like Robbie Gallaty or a Jim Putman. But the common factor is we're committed to making disciples who make disciples. So as you're listening, D.A., to Robbie, if you were to say one thing that stood out to you to take home, what would it be? I think the the sheep make sheep, that really resonated with my heart because at the end of the day, at best, I'm an under-shepherd, but I'm a sheep. (laughs) And the reality of that helps me sympathize and empathize with the people that I'm privileged in this season of life to be an under shepherd of, but also it frees me to recognize I'm still following the chief shepherd. I can't create, I can't uh, basically wire my life in such a way that I become the shepherd. I'm an under shepherd at best. Yeah. And uh, it's very freeing for me then to recognize I tip over. And if I'm not making disciples, who's going to set me straight? Mm. Uh, I can easily follow a goat if I just sit there and look at the open door, if I'm not following Christ. And all the analogies that I thought of from John 10, you Mm. know, Jesus being the door, the good shepherd, I know his voice. Well, there's seasons in ministry when I'm confused and I don't have clarity. I'm not thinking (laughs) clear. And I'm wondering, Jesus, where is your voice at? And then I think back to the, well, how much time am I spending in the Word? Mm. How much time am I diving deeply into the ocean of Scripture to say, there's your voice? I'm so sorry, Lord. I was not in this as much as I should. So those are things. I tell people, it's funny you say that, because I tell people, you can't say you you don't hear from God with a closed Bible on the desk by the bed. Yeah, yeah. Like people, I don't hear from God. If your Bible's closed at night, you can't say that because right. God's already, That's God right. said everything he needs to say in this book. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so we don't, we don't graduate from the Bible. So yeah. It's good Amen. In fact, you know, uh, there's something unique about both of you. Uh, first of all, first of all, you are both very committed to the authority of the word of God. Yeah. And when I say that, I don't mean that it's a theory for you, although you do believe in the inspiration mm-hmm. and infallible word of God. But you make it practical. You're both, I know your ministries and your lives well enough to know that's, that's the basis out of which you do ministry. Even DA, the talk that you get, you're coming out of scripture mm-hmm. uh, and you know how to use the hands and, 
and uh, you know how to how to rap, and you could. But but it's coming out of scripture. Da's the kind of guy we all wish we preached like. You know, I'm listening to Da. Like, why can't I preach like that? Right? He's like a poet <laughs> preacher. I so love it. I now, love Robbie, it. you talked about the study with Eric Geiger and Lifeway, okay. and that engagement with the Word of God is the most significant thing going on. Now, the yeah. context of relationships but it's engagement with the Word of God. Now, I'd like to stick with this for a second. Years ago, many of those uh, who are in church leadership will know, in the Willow Creek Reveal study, they, uh, they studied, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, believers in Jesus, and they came down to it, and they said, if you could only do one thing, what is the single most important thing you could do? And it was daily engagement in the mm. Word of God. Good. which is exactly what you're saying. And uh, what I'd like to bring up, and, and I'm wondering if you guys can, can bring it down right here. What are some key things that we need to know when we leave here, in addition to us being in the Word, but of calling people in our churches into the Word? Because disciple-making is relational. It's how Jesus did it. But Jesus never intended it to be apart from Scripture. In fact, uh, archaeologists have found out recently, Craig Evans and others are documenting how people in the time of Jesus really knew Scripture, Mm. how highly literate they were. They took Deuteronomy chapter 6. They understood it as a commandment to know the words of God when it says, these commandments I give you today… Talk about them when you walk along the road with your children, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and your foreheads. They took that to mean in the first century that they had to be able to read and memorize the Word of God Mm -hmm. to teach it to their kids. So they were far more literate than we often think, and and, uh, archaeologists have demonstrated that recently. I, I have a concern. We're in a time where all of our people are so busy. Your people are busy. My people in my church are busy. Everybody's so busy. Okay? And uh, Robbie, you showed the church attendance stats. So we're not getting them in church. And and when they do come to church, uh, even 20, 30 years ago, they'd come to Sunday school. Then they'd come to, you know, a, a worship service. They might come back Wednesday night or during the week. But now you're doing good if you can get them there one to two times a month just for the worship service. Right. Yeah. What are we going to do to get them into groups and into the Word? Keep I think, uh, okay, so I'll say there's a lot that we could say because you, you said a lot of, of good things. I've always said this. I think the greatest challenge for the American church is the vast amount of literate believers who are illiterate to the Bible. Wow. Think about that. People who, we're not talking about a foreign culture where they don't have access to the Bible, which right now at Long Hollow, we're translating a Bible into the language of a people in Southeast Asia that have no access to the Bible. They couldn't read the Bible if they wanted to. But we in America, we flippantly, we, we use the Bible as placards to hold our seat, placeholders, yeah, yeah, and we flip the Bible. Yeah. We have so many Bibles, we don't even read the Bible. Yeah. So uh, that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say is, um, as you said, relational. Another principle about, sh- I mean, there's so many shepherding. But here's the thing about sh- shepherding and having animals. Shepherds smell like sheep. Pastors, you need to be around your flock as a shepherd. A disciple maker smells like sh- we, we, we're around our people. So. Uh, here, here's one more thing, and I'll let DSP, but recently, just to prove your point, um, some guys from um, stewardship company, Generis, told us they just conducted a survey for a, a couple years from, essentially, write this down, from 2000, in, in the year 2000, the average church attender, church going attender, member of your church, went to church 3.2, 3.2 times a month, 2000, 3.2 times a month. Could be one of us. 3.2 times a month. In 2017, just 17 years later, the average church girl, member of your church, goes to church 1.8 times. So, pastor, listen to me. It's not necessarily that your church is declining. Here's what's interesting. 
It's that the people who call themselves members are coming less frequently. That's why you have such a big service on Easter Sunday. It's all the roamers and casual people who call them, you know, Harpeth home, but I come once a month, they come on one Sunday. So the answer, somebody said, what's the answer to that? I think the answer is discipleship. If you Absolutely. wanna close the back door of your church, you get people connected in smaller context. Whether you're pastoring a church of 50 or 100 or a church of a larger size, it's getting people in these smaller contexts of stick-to-itiveness, so. Uh, I just, uh, we gotta stick on this for, for a second here, guys. So what's happening is people are going to church less, the culture is discipling them more, right? Mm -hmm. uh, through social media, through uh, movies, through you name it, the culture, everybody's being discipled by somebody. That's right. But how many people are uh, so associated in relationships with our church that they're being discipled by the word of God in the midst of the people of God? Because disciple making, as we all agree, takes the word of God, the people of God, and the spirit of God right. in the midst of it. Yeah. And we've got to be calling each other We've got to be calling all of us as individuals because this is sheep reproduce sheep. It's not going to take the leaders. It's going to take Acts chapter 4. Everyday men, they said of Peter and John, yeah. they were ordinary men who had been with Jesus. The disciple-making movement that Shinonke started us, started us off talking about, it is not seminary educated people, although there's a place for seminary. It's everyday people who say, I'm a disciple called to make disciples using the word of God as my authority and my power. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now I'm the one preaching here. Yeah. Come on, okay. But, 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 but give okay, us some. Here's why, let me say this too. And I don't want to hold, but you got me fired up too. So I'm just going to say one thing. I, <laughs> sorry, right. you, just get one thing. I'm going to turn to you. I said this before, and people said, so five, 10 years ago when I used to say this, people thought I was crazy, and you know what I'm about to say because I've said this before. I believe a return to disciple making will bring about the reformation of the 21st century. I am convinced of that, and here's why. If you study the reformation of Martin Luther's 17th century, what made that so amazing was that Luther believed, as Tyndale kind of led the way and Wycliffe before him, that the plowboy in the field could take the word of God with the spirit of God and understand it for himself. You didn't need a priest or a cardinal or a bishop. You could understand the word for That's yourself. Right. That That's was the right. Reformation of back right. then. Here's what's so cool about discipleship and disciple making. The people of God, any person filled with the spirit of God can wield the word of God, invest in the people of God for the glory of God and do it faithfully fearfully because you don't need a seminary degree and you don't need a sheepskin on the wall, but anybody can do it. And I think when we do that more, we can empower people to take ownership of their faith. That's right. And we can see a That's movement. Right. And here's what I tell people all the time. Leonard Ravenhill used to say this. He used to say, because what you're doing is you get people on fire for God. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, you don't have to advertise a fire it advertises itself. See, listen, when people get set on fire for Jesus, they become the greatest apologists in our church right. for a disciple-making right. movement. Right. I'm just telling you guys, when you get serious about it. Yeah, that's, that's right. right, that's right. I, I would definitely add two things, and it goes back to a high view level of scripture. Uh, number one, what we have to help our people understand, because the culture is seeking to pull them away. Uh, it's the enemy doing the same thing he did in the garden sowing seeds of doubt of God's word and God's goodness. Same thing he did to Eve, he's doing today. So right. you tell the people the tactic of the evil one. But then you also look at the fact that we have a transcendent God who stands outside of time and he stands outside of cultural interpretation. His word is greater than both of those things. If his word is truly timeless, there's no expiration date on it. That's right. So it doesn't mean that what was then is then and what is now is now. The culture can say that because they don't know the transcendent God that we do, but yet he's also imminent. And so that is where the abiding Holy Spirit that lives inside of us gives us the gift of illumination. So what we have to recognize is that Scripture gives us a framework that we are to recognize everything inside of this is righteousness as a transcendent, completely holy and perfect God has declared this is righteousness. Everything outside of these hard lines that form the framework, that is unrighteousness. As my covenant-keeping people, you are called to walk in freedom in the framework that I've given you. But here's what's happened in America and other countries that are more westernized and that are more industrialized is that we, inside of the framework, have built up walls of separation, segregation, and division. 
And so what we have to recognize is it's understood culturally in the American landscape of Christianity that Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling, is truncated to Sunday only. Nowhere in the text does it say (laughs) Sunday only. That's right, brother. So the reality of the fellowship and the gathering of the people of God is at any time that we as believers and dwelt by the Spirit of God come together to commune and fellowship within the framework. So what we have the heavy lifting of doing is deconstructing American Christianity, but never take it to deconstructing the transcendent framework of Scripture. That will allow us to operate in more freedom. And in this process of deconstruction, that is what discipleship does. It deconstructs the mythology of programmatic steadfastness. And it's now personally driven with understanding the text and living it out in the nuances of the culture and the society that according to Acts 17, 26, God has sovereignly predetermined us to live, move, and have our being in. So when the people of God understand this is the reality of what I'm called to live, it is a high-level view of Scripture. It's a high-level view of the mission of Jesus, and that is where we have the lowly responsibility mm. of living these things out. Wow. Yeah. That's that, isn't that good? Good. Really good. All right. I could keep talking to these guys all day. But let me tell you what is most important right now. It's that we become doers of what we've been talking about. If we are called to be disciples who make disciples, who take the Word of God, believing it's the power of God, that as disciple makers within the boundaries of Scripture, holding a high view of Scripture and calling people to trust Scripture as it points us to Lord, the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings, we all have the privilege of loving those around us enough to honor Jesus by committing to be disciple makers. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple-Making Forum? Every year, disciple-makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple-making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.